So I got here mostly because uh, my good friend Esmeralda is living here, and I really wanted to come down and see her. We'd always seen each other in other places. She came up to Washington for a meeting where I first met her. Then I was living in the Middle East, and I went to Rome for a visit, and I met her there. And then we saw each other in the Middle East. And so now, in her own home, this is, I really wanted that. So she said, why don't you come and give a witness? And I said, cool, I can do that with my eyes closed. <laughs> Uh, I do it full time. That's my job. That's what I do. I mean, I do other than that, but uh, that I do a lot of that. You know, I went on eight CL vacations this year. Oh my God. Yeah. They all called me to give a witness, and then I would stay for a few days and do other things. But uh, the fact is, I've just come from the Pittsburgh encounter. You guys hear that? Nobody hear that? You heard of that, right. So they're just trying to spread the wealth of uh, the New York encounter. You know, with the, you know I, I've spoken at several of these kinds of things in Italy. You know, the last one was in June called Bergamo in Contra. So, I mean, it's, I, know what the, you know, I know the deal. But I gave a talk there, and, uh, and I just did it. I got it. And they said, well, you know, give the talk. So I'll bring a little bit of Pittsburgh to you. Weren't you just waiting for that? And you say, you know, this place would be perfect if only we had, it was more like Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> what? They don't have palm trees in Pittsburgh. I didn't see any. <laughs> but I can't swear to it. So I'm going to start out. You know, with a, a story that when I was about 13, one of my older brothers got out of prison. Now, I grew up on a hippie commune, and since when you grow up on a hippie commune, you know, you, the hippie, I was there at the beginning. I mean, I was there at the beginning. My mother was there at the beginning. My mother was in that writer's group that was publishing something called the Transcendental Review, and then they changed the name to the New Age Journal, and that began the New Age movement. You know, I was there. I was there. I was there. So I remember in the first years, you know, the first two or three years that, you know, we were in the hippie community, it was all, there were two words that defined the experience. Two words that, you know, if you were a hippie, there were two words that, that, that went along with that. What were the two words? No. <laughs> Peace, yeah. Peace and love. But it didn't take long, three and a half years like that, three or four years, and we didn't hear those words anymore. We heard three different words. What were the three different words? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going to talk about two. <laughs> So this story includes two of those, and rock and roll is not one of them. <laughs> so, the, uh, but, you know, I have two brothers who became drug dealers, and, you know, it was just there. You know, it was just what was happening. 
And then a sister who, my, one of my sisters is right now, I mean, she's a fairly wealthy woman. She, uh, she is considered to produce, you know, the very best crop of marijuana in, in California. And no, it's not legal. So, uh, but this one brother at a young age was traveling around the world on drug connections. And he was arrested in Israel for for this, and he spent time in prison, and he got out of prison, and he came home, and we were, you know, he was with us, we were talking, and at a certain point, there's uh, him, my grandmother, and myself, and and he was saying how the day he got out of prison, he went into the old city of Jerusalem in a Damascus gate, and he was right outside Damascus gate, and he saw this really, really beautiful young woman, and he said, I got to have her, and he said, and that night I did, I had her. And I don't know. I mean, I grew up on a hippie commune and everything, and I, but I mean, this seemed, I mean, there were the rules in the commune, but then you know, this seemed, I said, how did that happen? You know, how'd you do that? I went, partly out of, you know, amazement, partly out of, you know, tell me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandmother, who was uh, a woman of the world, you know, she had been a nightclub dancer in the speakeasies of New York. She had become a famous dancer. She was with the Ziegfeld Follies on Broadway. You know who this, what the Sigfield Follies are? Well, yeah. Yeah, they were, it was the most famous show on Broadway for 30 years. And all the famous dancers, singers, comics, actors all went through there. Um, ever see Funny Girl with, Fanny Bri with uh, Barbara Streisand? That's the Sigfield Follies. That is a true story that happened. My grandmother was the, in the you know, prima donna de la ballerina. And then she became the very first cover girl for Revlon. She was the very first cover girl for Revlon. And then she became a businesswoman, vice president of Revlon, and things like that. So my grandmother was a woman of the world. And she had been through lots of amorous adventures and things. And so she looked at me and she said, Honey, don't you know, desire begets desire. In other words, the desire of my brother for this woman made her desire him. And I thought that was a good tip, you know. What I, and I, you know, I, I trusted that that described a lot about the dynamic, you know, sexual dynamics of, of, you know, men and women. But what I didn't expect was that it also describes the dynamics of salvation, of our communion with God forever. His desire for us begets our desire for him. You know, I was, ran across this quote, only the beauty of God can attract. God's way is through enticement, through allure. Who said that? It was Pope Francis down in Brazil this summer speaking to bishops, the bishops' conference. You know, this, this is something that goes very, very deep. I'm just going to talk about this dynamic, you know, in my own experience, how I see it. You know, I remember uh, when we were uh, translating, I don't think it was ever published, but we did translate uh, Attractiva Gesù, which is a collection of conversations that Father Luigi Giussani. Does anyone here not know who Father Luigi Giussani is? 
There's someone in the back. Do you know who Father Luigi Giussani is? No. Okay, well, you see, this is not a stupid question. <laughs> Father Luigi Giussani was a priest in Italy. He's dead. God rest his soul. And he, uh, you know, through the depth of his faith, through the brilliance of his mind, the passion of his heart, he simply set the people around him, mostly young people, on fire with a new hope through encountering Jesus Christ. And out of that came a movement called Communion and Liberation. And I personally belong to Communion Liberation, and I know these two as well, and probably somebody here does this. So that's who Father Giussani is. And in this movement, and we do a lot of stuff, but one thing is we read and discuss and work on and try to understand his books. So this was a book of his. And it's called Attractiva Gesù, which literally means attractiveness Jesus. But we're trying to figure out how to translate that, give what title to give that, because you can't just say attractiveness Jesus. I mean, that just is not going to work. <laughs> My suggestion was this. God, he's good looking. <laughs> I don't know. They didn't use it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, I would like to say, you know, point out that this whole dynamic of, of the mystery entering into our lives in this way as attractiveness, as an attraction, as, as desire, is, you know, fantastically new in the world. This was not something that the world could have imagined before it happened. I was raised, I keep saying, on a hippie commune, and there's a lot to say about that, but my oldest sister, uh, who was, you know, did most of the mommying, you know, she did a lot of fixing the meals and making sure, you know, whatever, that I was had my zipper up when I went out the door or whatever I, she had to do. And uh, she converted to Nishin Shoshu Buddhism when she was 15, and she raised me, you know, she trained me in that. I mean, I, when I was nine, I, uh, I was, I mean, I remember I had a, my picture in the newspaper because I could do four hours of complete, you know, concentrated Buddhist meditation without stopping. I did it for her. You know, I, I, I was not, never a Buddhist, but I just, you know, she ta taught me to do that, and I did it. She said, see, I'm, you know, look at me. <laughs> so um, then my mother was a, a, a very devout follower of a famous guru at the time named Baba Ram Das. Anybody? So who has, do you know anything about Baba Ram? Yeah, he was Steve Jobs' guru. He wrote, uh, he wrote two famous books, that, uh, Be Here Now and uh, Grist for the Mill. In any case, uh, and so, I mean, we were trained also in, you know, uh, my, me and my brothers, my younger brothers, in, uh, in transcendental meditation. And so I heard this story the story of, of the Buddha. And... I've always been struck 
by how the human dynamic, the human dynamic of Christianity begins from exactly the same point as Buddhism, but they go in 180 degrees different direction. So what is the story of the Buddha? And I would like to present this, you know, in just two minutes, just as a contrast. But to show you, this is, you know, this is what the world can offer. And it's deep, and it's meaningful, and it's completely the opposite. But I mean, even, you know, the Greek culture never got to the point of attraction. I mean, all of Greek theater was about either tragedy or farce, not about attraction for salvation. This is, this is new in the world. But to contrast that, I'll just say that Siddhartha, the first Buddha, was a prince, a Hindu prince up in the mountains in the Himalayas. And his father, who loved him, had him be raised in a, in a, in a paradise created for him with all that was most beautiful, most refined, most touching, most pleasing. And he grew up in this paradise, never knowing or even suspecting suffering. But as a man, he left and went to discover the world. And he discovered suffering in himself. But what really shocked him was the, just the, the depths of suffering of the, the, the human condition. And he said, why do humans suffer? He said, they suffer because they desire, but they cannot possess. They desire what they cannot possess. How can they not suffer? They can not suffer if they cease to desire. That makes sense, right? But there's a problem there, and Buddha, you know, and Siddhartha understood this problem very well. Because, I mean, Buddhism goes very deep. You know, it's not practiced by billions in the world for nothing. I mean, it's, he says, well, it's true that you know, desire is completely tied up with just being me. <laughs> you know? I mean, if, if you say, How do, I don't know you. I don't know this person, right? I never met him. How can I know who he is, whether I can trust him or what I, whether I can't trust him? Well, I figure out what he's after, what he's seeking, what he wants, and then I figure I know him. Or if I say, I don't know who I am, what am I saying? I say, I don't know what I want. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, Jesus, what is the first thing we hear Jesus say to his first disciples? The first words. What do you want? <laughs> you know. These, so, to say I is the same thing to say I want, I desire. I may not know I mean, this is, you know, we are so sinful sometimes because I desire, desire, and I don't know what, so I'll take this. That's not it. No, I'll take that. Oscar Wilde said, there are two great tragedies in the life of a human being that can happen in the life of a human being. The first great tragedy is very much what Buddha said. What is it? Not getting what you desire. But he was also, you know, a Christian, died a Catholic. And so he said, and the second great tragedy is getting what you desire, because it ain't it. <laughs> and it's worse, it's worse. After all you've suffered, after all you've imagined, after all you hoped, and it's all betrayed, it ain't it. 
You know, we desire, but we don't know what we desire, and therefore we take. So therefore, Buddha said, but it's true that to say I means already to say I desire. And this is, but he says, therefore, liberation, enlightenment for the human being is to realize that this is an illusion. Not only is the object of desire an illusion, but the I that desires it is an illusion. There is no I. There's only being. And we have an illusion that my being is somehow distinct or individual or unique, whereas it is just being. And enlightenment is to release the consciousness of self and to just be. Be here now. The title of Baba Ram Dass's book, who is not a Buddhist, but there's a, there are, you know, myst, Hindu mysticism comes, you know, goes like this with some parts of Buddhism. However, the Christian experience starts from this too. I desire, but I don't know what. But then at a certain moment, an object crosses my path, crosses my field of vision. And I say, you, look, because no one can desire without an object, an object of attraction. Who saw Silence of the Lambs? You didn't see Silence of the Lambs? I saw it like this. La, 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 <laughs> But I wish I were kidding. <laughs> but the, uh, there's this interesting dialogue between this evil psychiatrist who, who, who commits horrible crimes, a completely amoral being. And this, uh, he's in prison, and there's this FBI agent trying to find this person doing, and he, she, she just intuits that this guy has, this guy has got to know what's happening here, or who's even more, and he does, but he's playing games with her, you know, he's playing games with her, like, a, so finally she gives him something of what she wants, and so he desires decides to give her, you know, the clue she needs. He says, "Well, this guy committing these terrible crimes, why?" Why does he do it? And she thinks about it. She thinks about it. She says, because he desires. And he says, but what does he desire? And she thinks about it. She says, he desires what he sees. And with this, she has the clue. And she goes. But this is it. Desire comes through encounter. Other, you know, other, we can have a, a lack of ease and uncomfortableness inside because there is something that desires, but without an object or hypothesis of an object, nothing can come forth. We just know perhaps that something's not right inside, but we'll never call it desire unless there's an object of attraction. You know, there's this uh, Italian blogger who I read as often as I can, uh, who I love 
terrifically. Her name is Costanza Miriano. And she wrote, uh, she's, she writes books on family life, you know, Christian family life and stuff. But she has a great sense of irony, especially about herself. And uh, very, very funny, but very deep. And she recently put, she had a blog where she said that uh, she always writes about herself in the third person. Because, you know, Costant, you know, in Facebook, for example, it starts out with your name, and so she always refers to herself in the third person. She says, assured her husband that in preparing his budget for the coming year, need not consider any new purchases for her since she has all that she needs, you know, and, her, and she has a full closet and all is well. But she goes on to say, having determined that she needed no purchases, nonetheless, walking past a storefront window, suddenly she discovered that she could not go on living without a certain charming purse and a darling pair of matching shoes. Who has not had that? Well, maybe not with a darling purse and a charming. Maybe so, maybe so. But, you know, with that, that car... That iPad, it has a SIM card and mine doesn't. I can't live anymore. <laughs> you, know, it ha- you know, it comes out of the blue. We don't have anything. We're all fine. Talk! I can't live anymore without this. It, desire requires an object of attraction. But... Well, I will first say, you know, and this is the dynamic of salvation. The dynamic of salvation. Tomas Monkavizaska says, the first and most fundamental movement of our spirit in every moment consists in going out of ourselves in order to adhere to someone calling us, someone attracting us to himself. Abraham, God's Lord says, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Jesus said, what do you seek? And they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. The dynamic from Abraham to Jesus and to all the saints And this is the language, the language of attraction, of desire. It goes very deep within uh, the life of faith. You know, it, it gets even very explicit. You know, there's a, a book of poetry of the, the relationship of love between God and the human being called the Song of Songs in the Bible. And I, right now I'm going to quote just two short passages, one of the, the, the soul, I mean the human being, looking at God, and God is the male figure, and the human being, whether male or female, is the female figure. And these are not the hottest verses, and the hottest verses I decided not to, you know, torture myself with them. And I <laughs> but it says, so this is the soul looking at, you know, his arms are rounded gold, 
set with jewels, his body is sculpted ivory, worked and encrusted with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set upon bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Lebanon, uh, for the Jews, was just so full of water and fountains and rivers and trees and green and animals. Life, you know, fresh, choice as the cedars. His speech is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. And then you have God looking at the human person, saying, How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, O delectable maiden. Delectable. I mean, these are strong words. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts, your breasts are like the palm clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches and clusters. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. This is the Bible. Attraction as the force of salvation. I mean, the guy goes on to say a lot more about breasts, you know, and I can, <laughs> I can understand that, you know, myself. But we won't go there. The fact is that an object has to run across our field of vision. But this is not just any object. This is not just any object. Because the desire that produces that attraction, which is the force of salvation, the strength by which God draws us out, that magnetic force. You know, this is important. You know, the magnetic force relative to gravity is infinitely. I mean, it takes just a, really a small magnet underneath the rocket, let's say, that's taking off from Cape Canaveral to keep it from taking off. You know, this is the attraction far greater than worldly attraction. And it draws out of us something that worldly attraction can't. Because it's not just an attraction, it is the attraction. Because there's something that might attract my lust, right? Or something that might attract my appetite, you know, or my thirst. Something that might attract, you know, my, my pride, right? All these things are being attracted. But what is it that attracts my eye, myself, that causes myself to come out? That's not just anything. That's not just anything. Who here has seen the movie A Man for All Seasons? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a top fiver. Well, this movie, because I saw that you do not did not raise your hand, so I will just set you up. A Man for All Season tells the story of the last year and a half or two years of the life of a saint, an English saint. His name is Thomas More, and he was a very famous intellectual at the time of the Renaissance in England, and a lawyer, and he rose from his common back, you know, you know, background to become Chancellor of England. But he was also a very profound Christian. And at a certain point, you ever hear of Henry VIII? 
And what is he most famous for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, killing his wives. But you know the truth is, he only did that a couple times. <laughs> the thing that really had consequences was he decided that he had to be the head of his kingdom. That means he had to be the head of the church in his kingdom. And he had his church, the Church of England, or Anglican, to be separated from the Church of Rome. And that changed history, completely changed history. So at a certain point, he, you know, and he did it, and everyone went along with almost virtually everyone. Thomas More was one of the very few who did not. And there are only two bishops of all the bishops in all England, and Scotland for that matter. Thanks, because I'm getting down. And in Scotland for that matter, there are only two bishops who didn't, John Fisher and another, but John Fisher was martyred as a saint of the church as well. They have the same feast day, John Fisher and Thomas More. So Tom, Thomas More, the king and him had been very close friends and stuff, and the king was putting more and more and more pressure on him you know, to, to, to come to his side, to, 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 to back him up. And he had decided to just be silent, be silent, be silent. But the problem was that he was a very, very famous man, very famous for having a very uh, deep conscience. And so it, his silence spoke volumes. And at a certain point, uh, his closest friend, who was in... Uh, the Duke of Norfolk, not the Earl, right? The Duke of Norfolk. He was the, the Duke of Norfolk. And Duke is the highest you can be without being royal. You know, it just can't stand it that his best friend is, you know, and the Duke is right in the, the Privy Council of the King. He knows things are getting really tough and dangerous for Thomas. He's saying, Thomas, what the heck are you doing? Come with us, come with us. What the heck do you think? How can you, you know, all the bishops are doing this except John Fisher. You know, you know every, we're all doing this. You know, what, what's the problem? So at a certain point, Thomas realizes he has to break with him. And so he has to break with him for two reasons. One, because he has to walk his path, and this guy's a temptation to him. But secondly, because this guy really is attached to him. And if he stays attached to him, he'll end up in the same position. Does that make sense? So, so he says to him, Thomas More, he says to his friend, the Earl of Norfolk, no, the, the Duke of Norfolk, and what would you do with it? Okay, he's, so he asks him about what, he says, what is that new breed of dog that you dukes, you know, you noblemen are so, because he was a commoner, you know, named Tom. so what is that, de, that breed of dog that you guys are? You know, he says, water spaniels. He says, ah, yes. And what would you do with a water spaniel that was afraid of water? You'd hang it. Well, as a spaniel is to water, so is a man to his own self. I will not give in because I oppose it. I do. I. I. Not my pride, not my spleen, nor any other of my appetites, but I do. I. I do. At that point, Moore goes up to him and feels him up and down like an animal, like you check a horse, like you check a dog, you know, for the muscles and things like that. And he turns to Norfolk and he says, is there no single sinew in the midst of this, all these muscles, all this body that he's touching, 
here and all of you, is there no single muscle or sinew in the midst of this that serves no appetite of Norfolk's, but is just Norfolk? There is. Give that some exercise, my lord. <laughs> because if you did, you'd have a conscience. But you have no conscience. You have none. Because you have no eye. You have your pride. You have your duties. You have your pleasures. You have your fears. But where, what is, what, who are you? Are you your fear? Are you your pride? Are you your pleasures? The fact is that the object that comes across our field of vision is an object that calls to the deepest part of ourself, that yearns for life, for eternal life, for true life, for real life. I mean, for that real life, I mean absolute truth, you know, that kind of life. I mean, perfect love. No settling. Total beauty, real justice, infinite goodness. You know, being with Christ, it's like, you know, We'll wait. That's my mom. Well, answer. It's your mom. If it were my mom, I'd answer. She knows. She's very understanding. Okay. <laughs> Being with Christ. You know, when I first became a Christian, you know, I was, as you know, I wasn't raised Christian. When I first was doing that sort of thing, I took years before I actually got around to opening the Bible. And But I had been going to church, and you know, and you hear the sermons, they always talk about Jesus is so nice. Jesus is so gentle. Jesus is so kind. Jesus is so patient. I couldn't find that guy anywhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, where is that guy? I mean, this is a guy who says, how much longer can I stand to be among you? you know? <laughs> this is a guy at a certain point says, hey, you guys, are you, to his, you know, apostle, are you going to leave me too? You know? This is the guy who turns... And, and, and to, the, to the Canaanite woman asking for him to heal her daughter, say, you dog, you know? And that, I lived for 10 years in the Middle East, and I'm telling you, that's the bottom. You have really hit the bottom when you say, you dog. That is, that's the bottom. I mean, this guy is tough. It was fascinating to be with him, thrilling to be with him, compelling, stunning, overwhelming, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. I mean, you know, there he was. Uh, you know, Simon, Simon Barjona. It is not flesh and blood that has revealed, revealed these things to you, but my God in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Wow. <laughs> and then, what happened? Then they says, and yes, and now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the high priests and the elders are going to torture and kill me. He says, no, may God forbid it. He says, you are Satan. <laughs> you know, Jesus turns to him and says, you are Satan. I mean, <laughs> when Jesus came back from the dead, according to St. Mark, and he appears to the 12, you know, in the, in the upper room, what was the first thing he does, according to St. Mark? He says, and he rebuked them. 
You come out from the grave and say, you asshole! (laughs) It wasn't easy being with this guy. And it's not easy being with this guy, but there's nothing like it. He doesn't appeal to our pride. He appeals to something else, much deeper. You know, he always appeals... You know, being with Jesus is a purification of desire. This is what it is. It is always a a constant purification of desire. You know, when they came running after Jesus to make him king, what did they desire? Bread. And he said, bread? You want bread? I'm the bread of life. At the, mid, at, the, at the middle of the day, in the heat of the sun, coming out of the town, walking the kilometer or two to the well, there was the Samaritan woman. And what, did she, what was she after? Water. And what did he say? I have the water of everlasting life. I am that well. It was always a purification of desire. You know, when they, at the Last Supper, they were arguing, who is the greatest among them? He said, are any of you greater than me? No. And he got on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. You want to be great? Be great. You know, when, when John and Andrew... When John and Aunt, no, no, when James and John, when James and John went up to him and said, yeah, you know, when you kick out the Romans and you're kicking butt all over the place and we're on, you know, we're taking over, because this guy was powerful. He was all powerful and all good. I mean, nothing, nothing was going to stand in his way. They were so sure they were, you know, the world was going to be conquered. It was just not the way they thought. And they said, you know, and then he even had their mother go and say this, you know, or she pushed them, you know, or not, they probably, you know, we're all in on it together. He said, you know, we want to be one on your right, one on your left. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't rebuke them. In fact, these were two of the three he always called with him everywhere that he went. He didn't rebuke them. He says, you want to be great? This is how you can be great. Be like this child. He didn't say, you're wrong to want to be great, but he purified it. Drink my cup, and you will be great. And it's not going to be like you thought, but a lot better. It's a purification, being with him is a purification. We're always tempted to pay more attention to what pleases us, what strokes us, what protects us from that which we fear. But he says, be not afraid. And be attracted. But you be attracted. The self, the I, becoming more and more real. The I becomes more and more real when it is more and more in contact with its unique object of attraction. And as the I becomes more and more real, it becomes more and more capable of a relationship with everything. Because you know how it is. 
as long as we're being attracted to that which pleases us, what relationship do we have with that which does not please us? Our world becomes so small. But the more our eye is drawn out, the more everything becomes a part of this relationship with him. Everything. 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 St. Paul says, everything I say. He says three times in one sentence. Everything. Everything I say. Everything is reconciled in Christ. Everything becomes part of the good. Everything. No, really everything. No, I mean it. Because you're all thinking, yes, yes, everything except. I mean, we all do. No. Everything. And that's the I that is therefore brought out in relationship with that which affirms it and gives it a, a destiny, a hope. And therefore, everything becomes a part of that destiny and that hope. That's why we have the Psalms. I mean, the, the, the canticle of Daniel. Cold and chill, bless the Lord. Praise him and exalt him forever. Cold and chill. <laughs> Everything growing on earth, bless the Lord. Everything, bless the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. Everything becomes interesting. Everything becomes the place where we meet the object of desire. So much so that we have somebody like Maximiliano Col Maximilian Colby. He followed his object of desire even to an underground basement with 19 other men where he was starved to death. You know, years later when they went to interview you know, for the cause of beatification, they went to interview the guards who were standing guard for the 20 days that he lived without food or water. They had to come and, and, and inject a rat poison into his, his veins to get him to die. But they all remembered that because every other time, all the thousands of people they had put in those rooms to die that way, there had always been gnashing of teeth, you know, wailing, pounding, screaming, moaning, when he was in there, the men were singing, praying, comforting one another. It's the purification of desire. Father Giussani says, and this is really important, and it's the second to last thing I'm saying in this talk. In his book, you can... Uh, you can really live this way. He says, you can, you really can live life in simplicity, in this way. Simplicity means the calm in the heart when it is drawn to the one object of desire that satisfies. A simple person, you become a simple person, you have a simple heart. You're not like, you know, i got to have this, but now i got to have that. And now I don't want this, and now, oh, this isn't good enough. There's a new one, and mine is broken, or, you know. But this is, it becomes very interesting because Father Giussani, a little bit like Jesus, 
was fascinating to be with Father Giussani, but it was never, ever easy. I mean, he challenged you 24 hours a day. And, right, and since he saw right down to the middle, he challenged you right. I'll tell you a little story. May I? Okay. This I did not write down. I'll tell you about the first conversation I ever had with Father Giussani in Italian. Now, I had gone to Italy to meet... Uh, it's a very complicated story. I'm not going into it here. But I did, you know, go to Italy, and I, and I met him. And, but I wasn't... I didn't speak Italian. I, I'd just gotten there, and he wasn't speaking English. So there was an interpreter. So we had two or three conversations. But then, the first conversation I had with him, just, you know, talking, speaking in... was at the end of that summer. I did six vacations in a row, and, that, and by, in the end, I knew... Italian, and, uh, and I was exhausted to my bones. But at, there was a, he was speaking at, a, at the Equipe de Club, and that is with the university students. So there are five, six, seven hundred university students, and Father Giussani would talk for two and a half hours at a time, and for us it was great. I mean, and so this one time he was talking, and he got through talking, and he got off the stage and was just walking through, and I said, Father Giussani, I have a question. And this was all in town. He says, what's your question? I said, well, you keep on talking about, I'll say it in Italian, then I'll say it in English, il di più, il di più. And I'll go on and quote him here, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But what is more? You keep on talking about the more, the more, you know. You have to see what is more and follow what is more. And I said, I said but what, I mean, what can, how, can you, how can you define or describe or give me the characteristics of this more that, it, that shows it that this is the more? And he says, he looked at me and says, why do you ask me this question? And I said, well, uh, you know, I... As you know, I just got through studying theology in Berkeley for two and a half years, and there were among the theology students, there were always the communists who were always talking about, you know, wanted a communist revolution in the church, talking about the more. There were those who wanted a sexual revolution in the church. They talked more than ones that wanted a spiritual revolution, no more dogma, only feeling, you know, in the church. And that was more. The feminists wanted more. But, you know, they said, what we have is more. And you say, this is il di più, the more. And he looked at me and he said, and there are about 50 or 60 university students listening to this conversation. He says, this question of yours doesn't interest me at all. <laughs> Welcome to Italy. Thank you, thank you. I'll just, I should explain. I mean, I understood really even at the very moment he said it, why he said it even though I remained with this question. In fact, the next year, he stopped saying Il Depew. That's when he started to say uh, an exceptional human experience. I always thought it was because I challenged him. <laughs> 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 but, <clears throat> probably. <laughs> but the reason he said it is because I wasn't asking about my experience. I was trying to win an argument, and he didn't have two seconds to, to spare to try to help me win an argument. If I had said, 
well, I had this experience, and I don't understand it. Is this the more? Okay, that was for me, for my salvation, for my eye, for the attraction which draws out, for the more which draws out, for that greater thing that draws out my eye. Then he's willing to spend all year with me. But not even two seconds for something else, for something lesser. Have that in mind when I continue with this uh, quote by Father Giussani. You must let yourself respond to the attraction of what is greater, more beautiful, better. The person who starts out afraid of what is greater loses as well that which is less. Our lesser desires turn to ashes unless they are in the context of the greater desire, because it is only the greater desire that fulfills them. I mean, look, why, when do we call a person old? When the person is just not interested. And why aren't they interested? Because they know the limits of everything. And a limit is death. When is a person young? When in front of the objects of his life, what predominates is their promise. But in going towards every experience and every you know, object of attraction in this world, sooner or later we will meet its limits. And it will become old. And it will make us old as well. I mean, when is it, you know, get a new computer? Look what it does. You know, get a new car. And then it breaks. You just said, this old farty thing, I can't say you know. But, you know, when the eye is being called to its destiny, we have such an affection for the promise in everything, even knowing its limits. Does that make sense? That's how marriage works. And I don't think it works much without that. That's how common life works. He said you will even lose what is less if you don't risk for what is greater. It's not a matter of settling for less. It's this or nothing. I'm going to end up with a two, two little stories. What is this more, then? I remember one of the first times I could really identify this more. I mean, I'd had lots of experiences that were helping me, you know. But I was studying uh, at the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit university. I was in the great books program there called the St. Ignatius Institute, founded by Father Joseph Fessio. And, uh, but I was also a sociology major, social theory, really. And I came, you know, my family was very poor. I mean, when you grow up on a hippie commune, you know, one thing you don't get is rich. At least, well, my sister did. But <laughs> that came later. That came later. 
And uh, for me, being at this private university, I mean, it was really tough. And I have to say that at that university, they treated students like me who were on, you know, these financial aid programs, taking, you know, grant here, scholarship there, loan there, work, study there, you know, all these things. Uh, we really got treated like crap. I mean, just total crap. It was, I was really amazed. We really were treated like crap. And for example, one time, uh, you know, Bank of America, they, they gave me my student loan to pay the $6,000 for that semester, whatever it was. And they sent me the, they sent me the, 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 the notice. We have approved your loan. It will come. And we, you can pick up this check, you know, on this date, which was like 10 days after registration. And so I went to the registrar, and he says, oh, hey, so you won't study this year. Come back next year. Just like that. Didn't, you know, there's nothing to say. You know, I said, you know, can I, no, can, can I talk to? No. You know, that was it. Well, I didn't know who to go to, so I went to the head of the Sangnish Institute. But look, what you know, I had when I entered, when I started hanging out with the Catholics, I had my own reasons for doing it. But I started hanging out in the Catholic Church, right in that place where all this stuff—the new hippie, the new age—everything started. Right. Well, the Catholic Church was as affected by this as every other sphere of life. And therefore, when I entered, I mean. I mean, I came from this, you know, education that was enlightenment education, you know, Eastern education, and very far from Christian education in many ways. Nonetheless, I was in that youth group for a week, and they made me the head of it. Because no one had a proposal, no one, and I had proposals, because I had been trained to believe that with this new thing, this new age, this new civilization, this new humanity, that everything was going to be transformed. And I said, well, now that I'm doing the Catholic thing, I'll trans, I, we, you know, me, I don't know who else, but we, the young people, people will transform the church. Because the older people will just shut up and listen to us. And you know what? They were shutting up and they were listening to us. After one month, they put me in charge of the entire uh, confirmation program. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Within one year, I was leading the diocesan youth retreats. <clears throat> After two years, I was guiding the entire, you know, uh, summer camp program, diocesan summer camp program. So I was doing that, and then finally, uh, I, three years after I graduated from high school, I was able to get a financial package together in order to go to, to university, and I did. And I went to, to this, you know, study social theory because, you know, you know, my, my uncle was the head of the Communist Party in California and the head of the Longshoremen's Union, which is the, was the largest communist union at the time, you know, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I mean, this was my, you know, my father was a far-left politician. And so I, uh, you know, I was social theory on one hand, but then the Great Books Program on the other. I was very attracted to that. But this Great Books Program was a Catholic break. But I was a Catholic. There was no problem with me. I, are you kidding? I'm a, Who's more Catholic than me, you know? But I go there, and you know, but it's this horrid, awful, dark, backward, anti-human, a.e. anti-sex, program, you know, of these Catholics who actually believe what the church says, you know? I mean, this is nuts. I mean, I, and I was outraged. And I put myself against them. I mean, I stayed for two reasons. One, 
I did want to read those books. Two, I knew they, I had to teach them what was true. You know, I had, to, I, had to te- I had to teach them that, you know, all this thing about the truth had nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is about whatever you feel, or, you know, all that's whatever, whatever, you know, amen. So, but I mean, I was not patient or kind in this. I was, you know, a tack dog. I mean, twice during my years there, twice, twice, I was called to Father Sestio's office because the professor had accused me of trying to kill him. <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, and I could go into that, but the point is, it was like that. You know, I wrote articles against them for the, for the campus newspaper. I wrote articles against them for the San Francisco Chronicle. I gave an interview against him for the National Catholic Reporter. Yes, and I accused him of brainwashing. You know they, yeah. Do you know, you know what the National Catholic Reporter is? Yeah. So, I mean, and when they would organize, you know, I don't know, a, a fasting and, 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 and rosary night, I would organize other students to go see Life of Brian. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, just to give you an idea. Uh... But I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to go. I mean, I was not from a university family. My, neither of my parents had gone. I, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know what to do. So I went to him. And he said, uh, he just listened to me. He said, okay, got up, didn't say anything else, got up and, and went to his secretary and said, you know, write out a check for so many thousands of dollars. I can't remember the exact, exact uh, number. And she said, uh, where will I take that money from? He said, you know, the salaries. And she said, okay. And, you know, she did it. He, and he said, but, you know, i got to have this money, you know, back before the end of the month. Now, that turned out to be extremely complicated, but it got done anyhow. But, but it, all, the university, it turned out the university had to, uh, uh, they had to cash the check. And, the, uh, and they wouldn't do it. But, you know, that's another story. But it did get done by the end of the month. However, a couple of years after I graduated from St. Ignatius Institute, Father Fessi was fired for financial mismanagement. I've always wondered whether it was that. Yeah. In any case, so there was another time when they had put together my transcripts wrong. I mean, my, my, they had done, they had done it wrong in their office, in the university, and they said, well, you don't have what you need to graduate, you won't graduate, you have to spend another year. Well, I didn't have enough. I mean, I didn't have any money. In fact, I had not gone, I had gone to all my professors the last semester and asked them, please, I can't afford to live in the city anymore. Can you just let me go home and, and write papers for you? And since I had done very good work for them up to then, they all said yes, you know, and I, so, but that, you know, they, that was individual, one-on-one-on-one. On one on one. But I couldn't afford anymore, I was at the end. So I knew it, that, was, that would be the end. So I went to him and, you know, same thing. I graduated my class. So the, d- the day of graduation, I went to his office and I said, so I know, I, you know, I know whatever, 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 but I know I wouldn't be graduating without you. And so I know I really have to thank you. I, mean, I know I would not be graduating without you. Thank you, thank you. And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, don't mention it. He said, you know, we need more students like you, Vincent. 
And I know that I didn't do this. I know I just kept on looking like this. But I felt like saying, is there someone named Vincent? <laughs> and he said, uh, and he said, no, no, we, we need more students like you. Because you asked all the hardest questions. All the hardest questions. And then you stayed there to listen to the answers. And we all learned so much more than we would have otherwise. Later at my first mass, he uh, preached and he said, he asked all the hardest questions. Of course, he asked, he asked them very painfully. <laughs> he didn't say that at that moment. He was trying to. But what did I see in that moment? I saw in that moment someone whom I had made suffer as best as I could. And for him, it didn't matter at all. He was willing to suffer that if it would help me meet Jesus, meet the truth, meet my destiny. He was so much more willing to suffer for my destiny, for my life than I was. So much more willing to suffer for my good, for me, than I was. He was looking at a part of me that was me, that I didn't know. But I began to know in that moment. Does that make sense? Later, I had a conversation with him when I was finishing my master's, many years later, when I was finishing my master's in theology, and I, had, so I became the screaming, meme, traditional, anti-progressive, anti-heretic, you know, defender of Catholic doctrine in Berkeley. Well, you want to talk about an uphill battle. I don't know. <laughs> But it doesn't matter, right or left. The point is, fight. <laughs> so, but uh, I had applied to my home diocese to, 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 you know, and I'd done all that work in my home diocese for years. I, to, to, and then my home diocese, you know, realized that I was now a friend of Father Fessio, and they, they said, no, you can't be a priest, and you can't ever be a priest. So um, I didn't know what to do, and I went to him, and he said, well, why don't you go? Uh, I have some money, uh, you know, you have a good brain and you, you have faith and uh, you go study uh, in Europe, uh, take a doctorate uh, and uh, I'll pay for it. And he says, but what would you like to study? And I start to say, oh, what would I like? well, you know, uh, I haven't noticed anyone in the church studying this, you know, and it is very important that someone study this. Or it would be very interesting if someone could produce a work on that or how useful it would be for this. And he said, stop. I didn't ask you what would be useful for the church, what would be interesting for society, what, what would be, what it, that the church needs. I asked you what? What you want. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I hear, I hear. And I started to talk about, after, after five sentences, I was back on the, I, I still did not have any capacity to respond to my desire and see things from that from the truth of my destiny, from my desire. Couldn't do it. So he finally said to me, all right, all right, so we've come to this conclusion that you go to this place in Europe and study this. But I have a strong hunch that after two or three years, you realize you can't finish a doctorate on this. It's not really what you want. And you can't finish a doctorate on something you don't want to do. It takes too much out of you. So. After, after two or three years, you realize you've figured out what it is, then just don't worry about it. Come back. We'll start over. No problems. Desire. He understood desire is the only force. That attraction is the force of salvation. 
attraction is the force of salvation. And the last story is this that I remember one time visiting our, our seminary. The, I, I belong to a missionary society called the Priestly Fraternity of the Missionaries of St. Charles Borromeo. People usually call us the St. Charles Missionaries or the St. Charles Fraternity. And I went to our seminary in Rome, and I sat down in the evening with six or seven seminarians there. And I said, well, how did you end up here? How did you, what's your story? And, you know, we stayed up late drinking, and each one said the same thing. I mean, you know, they just told their story. But what I pointed out to them, when all of them just told their story, all of you have said the same thing. At one point, there was someone who was so much more willing to suffer for your good than you were. And the only way to be loyal to your life was to say, I have to stay with this person. I have to follow this person. I have to obey. Otherwise, I'm not obeying myself. Does that make sense? This person loves myself, and I don't even know myself. And that little I do know, I'm not too interested in. Now, that is, I, I am finished with my story, but there might be one more example I'd like to give, if, if that's all right. I finished, and if you need me to finish here, I'm, I'm done. Please. But there is one, and it doesn't take long to tell. My mom. I'm going to talk about my mom for a second. My mom is very important to me. And, uh, you know, she always wanted what was best for us in her own way. I mean, my mom is a fascinating woman and a good person, but she was not a good mother. It's just what it is. She tried, but what she had wasn't much. You know, she herself, I mean, I already said that my grandmother, which is her mother, what life she was, she was a, a, a nightclub dancer. She was a Broadway dancer. I mean, she, she couldn't have this kid around. So my mom, in the 30s, you know, grew up in foster homes, orphanages, in New York City, in the 30s. You, you may not know, but in, in the United States, there's a very, very, very bad economic breakdown at the time. And my mom was a very, very beautiful girl and very beautiful young woman. Was I mean, she used that to stay alive? You know that that was the deal. And she used her body to stay alive. And uh, so she. Saw my, she met my dad after the war, a war hero from an Irish Catholic family and, you know, already a union leader and all that. She thought, well, this guy will know how to have a family. I always wanted to be a part of a family. I always wanted to be part of family, and this guy should know how to be a family. So, I mean, she wasn't baptized or anything, but she wrote the con, you know, she signed her, you know, in the, at that time to get married to a Catholic in the church, and you weren't a Catholic, you had to sign a contract, I will raise the kids Catholic. She had no problem with that. She was really thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, the Catholic Church will tell me how to do this. I got no idea. But the problem is, she really also just did not have an affection for us. She wanted us, but she didn't, I mean, she, she, as she told me many times, you know, I would take my kids and I'd be there with the other mothers and say, sometimes I look my child in my affection. I, if I, I have, I'm afraid of the affection. I am just overwhelmed by it. And she would say, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know what? She didn't know what they were talking about. 
She finally did towards her, her last children. But still, you know, she had a hard time. You know? And then, then when she found the New Age movement, she really hoped that this would help her become, release her from her limits. You know? She was so aware that she did not know how to love. So aware of this. So, even though she had a great respect for this faith and stuff like that, I once asked her when she said me, she said, yeah, yeah, the church is right about that. And I said, you know, if the church is right about that, you know, that's a lot. It was a big deal. She said, oh, why don't you become a Catholic? She said, oh, me and the truth? <laughs> no. Because she was so limited. Every time someone put her in front of what a true human life was, for her it was an accusation. A deep, mortal accusation. She didn't want to be anywhere near it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Uh, a, a mortal accusation? Well, she felt it was killing her to be in front of something uh, like that. So uh, I go away to seminary. <laughs> it was such a scene in my house. But I told at a family meeting, I said I was entering the seminary. God, I did not expect that. Oh, my Lord. It was awful. It was awful. Awful. But, all right, so you, we, we live through these things. And, uh, but I, after my first year in seminary, the, the founder of my society, Domas Mukamizaska, came to visit. I think it was because I was telling him all the stories. He didn't believe me at all, and he wanted to check. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so he comes, and he, he's, he understands English, but he doesn't speak it, and, of course, they don't speak Italian. And so, I mean... And then I'm not a good organizer, and I didn't organize things well. But they saw each other here, there, that for a couple of days, and then he left. And, and about a month later, uh, my mom and I are in the garden reading books to each other, something we've always done. And she said, uh, uh, do you know the priest here in town? I said, by that time, you know, when I was in high school, my family moved out of the commune and into a town, a small town. And, she, and I said, Mom, I'm a seminarian. I know the priest here, you know. She says, well, can you introduce me? Yes. Okay. And not only was I really confused by that request, but I was thinking, shoot. You know, I was thinking, you know, I have such respect for that guy who was a priest there at that time. I mean, he was really faithful to the church. But he had, like, the human warmth of a rock, you know? I mean, just... <laughs> it was just the way it was. You know, what can I tell? He never held on to an associate for more than three months. I mean, he would never give them a key to anything. He had the, he had the refrigerator locked, and they couldn't even have a key to the refrigerator. So in any case, but I, I, I had a lot of respect for him. It's just that he had some human limits, you know? But I went, and I introduced them, and uh, they go in, not with me, I'm out. They're talking two and a half hours like that. And they come out, and they sort of look at me, but they keep on walking. I walk after them, they go in church, my mom takes all the sacraments. I didn't say a thing, you know. I, I didn't. But I did finally ask her a month later, what was that all about? And she said, well, when Don Massimo was here, I saw how much the church loves you. Okay. So we had this conversation another, you know, the next year and the year after that because I still didn't feel like I understood. 
And a couple years later, she said, well, don't you see? I want to be able to love you like that. It's an attraction that calls forth your eye. My mom didn't agree with anything that the church, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for her, it's still, you know, the most sacred political point is, you know, abortion on demand. But, you know, she had to follow this. Now, I have to say that Father Robert Barron in his series Catholicism has really taken her to new heights in a big way. For me, that's a real sign. No one convinced her of anything. But finally, there was something that called, forth, called her forth out of her fear. I want that. Maybe I could be me for the first time in my life. So that's the talk I gave in Pittsburgh. Now you heard it. <laughs>